Hello and welcome to City Community Culture with me, Sam Bergen. That was Michael Kiwanuka with Home Again, used under fair use for critique, quotation or review. Kiwanuka sings with melancholia about one day feeling like he is home again, searching for somewhere to feel secure and strong. And this perhaps captures a wider understanding that the home is a place of security, of love, belonging, safety and the ability to aspire for a better future. When I moved house a few years ago, for example, I received a congratulations card that read, A house is made of bricks and beams, whilst a home is made of hopes and dreams. And yet not only are such places becoming more and more difficult to attain for many people, but even the material form of what a home is, is is becoming, by necessity, more and more diverse. It's crucial, therefore, to reflect on the fact that whilst many of us may take safety and security for granted when thinking about home, the domestic sphere can also be a site of conflict. The security of our home can be undermined by eviction and by wider government policies, but also within the home, gendered and heteronormative domestic norms means that domestic labour is unequally distributed between men and women. The home can also be a site of potential domestic abuse and violence. And for many, it's a space fraught with inequality and potential violence. Many of the most massive human problems are in fact also housing problems. Houses signal the presence of deep social divides and fissures connected to social class and inequalities of access and provision as well as key factors such as gender, sexuality, age and so on. So despite at first glance being private and separated from wider society, homes are actually deeply social spaces. They are shaped by codes of conduct and social norms which flow in through the screens and windows. And as Atkinson and Jacobs have argued, social life passes through It is mediated by and ultimately structured in subtle ways by the buildings we inhabit as homes and the array of other constructions around us. The spaces and dwellings we inhabit structure us, assist us and shape the pathways and flows of our daily lives. 
In this episode of City Community Culture, we're going to take a sociological approach to housing, which means recognising that homes are more than private spaces, but deeply connected to wider social structures. Even where our homes are situated is significant, and our ambitions and opportunities are enormously influenced by where we live. We can see the way in which wider context shapes houses and homes by the form of the UK's housing crisis. As with many major capitalist nations across the globe, being young or poor in a UK centre of population today means to experience perpetual difficulty in accessing housing. Taking a neoliberal approach, consecutive governments have sought to quote, build our way out of the housing crisis, following the principle the greater supply would bring down housing prices and make it more accessible. At the same time, social housing has been sold off and not replaced, whilst controls in the private rental sector, both in terms of rent levels and quality, have become more and more relaxed. The problem with meeting a housing crisis through increasing supply is the type of housing being provided. Developers tend to build property that will get them a good return on investment, such as student housing or luxury flats. And yet, as was found out by The Guardian a few years ago, half of London's new build luxury flats have failed to sell. Meanwhile, the fact that so many people want to live close to population centres, whether for work, access to amenities or leisure, coupled with an inefficient and expensive transport system, means increased pressure on land values and astronomical sums for buying or renting somewhere to live in the city. This crisis is not helped further by the wider cultural context and a European Anglo perception that owning a home is a rite of passage which gives us an economic stake in the nation. In many ways, our national economy is being shaped by the fortunes and desires of the home-owning population, whether that's investment, land banking, pension funds, interest rates, mortgages, insurance, or simply political parties seeking electoral support. There's an obsession with ownership, and this has led to houses becoming increasingly seen as investments and assets rather than homes. For many, buying a house is seen as filling the hole left by austerity measures and cuts to social welfare, including pension precarity. And such financialisation only perpetuates inequality, insofar as those with inheritance can produce the next generation and give them a head start in life, or it allows those with more money to simply invest in high-value properties that they don't intend to use. Financialization pushes us away from seeing homes as a place for living, which everyone has a right to, and towards an asset worthy of return on investment. And yet there are hundreds of thousands of long-term empty homes in the UK that we know of. Many of these are being treated as investments or second homes, when they could be literally life-saving. The campaign group Action on Empty Homes estimates that before the pandemic there were 268,000 long-term empty homes in the UK. Meanwhile, at least one person a day on average dies homeless on the streets of Britain, 
with thousands sleeping rough and hundreds of thousands in temporary accommodation. It seems obvious that these homes need people and these people need homes, yet the economy and government policy is not geared in a way that incentivizes this obvious solution to homelessness and the housing crisis. A number of housing groups have been taking direct action to make this point. For instance, in March 2018, Streets Kitchen, a group who worked to support the homeless through solidarity, not charity, squatted an empty office block on Great Portland Street in London in order to shelter 100 people from from the East snowstorm. Yet despite saving lives through the action and drawing attention to the waste of empty buildings, whilst people were forced to live on the streets, they were evicted and the building remains empty today. The housing crisis then is affecting many parts of society. However, if we take crisis to mean chaos, fear and disempowerment, we might agree with Madden and Marcuse when they point out that for the oppressed, housing is always in crisis. There are many complex reasons why someone might become homeless, but top of the list in the UK is the housing crisis. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, crisis found that the biggest single cause of homelessness in the UK was the ending of an assured shorthold tenancy, i.e. a rental contract in the private rental sector. But to talk more about homelessness in greater detail, I met with Dr Chris Devaney, a research fellow in the Department of Law and Criminology at Sheffield Hallam University, to discuss what it's like to be homeless in the UK today. That's a big sound for little speakers. Yeah. Well, that's another thing, how kind of homelessness and city centres intersect. There are a lot of people who are homeless and busk. So this gentleman who we really enjoy now is doing a fantastic job. Like... Like there are a lot of play. In order for him to be able to busk, he would have had to apply for a license. He would have had to purchase all of his equipment. There are a lot of places in the UK where busking is essentially illegal unless you pay, uh, unless you pay for your licenses. So it's just another way. Of, it's another element of control. It's another way of another way of our towns and city centres are being sanitised to a large extent. So. I think one of the main problems for the general population is they have this really simple conceptualisation of what homelessness is. They walk down the street, see someone who's begging, and then they think that is a homeless person. Actually, it's far, far more complex than that. So basically, if you've got people who are living in a squat, that's insecure housing, that's that's technically homeless. You've got people living in hostels. Personally, I would define that to be homeless as well because... People are living in very difficult situations. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a real def. There's a, the best definition to use in terms of research is core homelessness, mm. uh, which was developed by the guys at Harriet Watt University, and that describes about ten different categorizations of homelessness, of which street, sleeping on the streets is only one of them. We're talking about a wide set of people in very difficult circumstances. But what you see when you walk down the street, that is literally the tip of the iceberg. It's far more complex than that. So levels of couch surfing vary quite a lot depending on area. But if we're talking about London, for example, uh, which is always a weird example as the kind of outlier, 
the numbers of people who are now couch surfing throughout the pandemic is, has been astronomical. And that's become a really big, really big problem. Essentially, it's people who are beyond the numbers. So there's, so the main ways that homelessness is measured by a lot of local authorities is through rough sleep accounts. So for instance, once or twice a year, the local authority will get um, around four or five members of staff, maybe from charities as well. They'll walk around about four o'clock in the morning. They'll look to see how many homeless people they can spot on the streets at any moment in time. Now, that apparently is measuring homelessness. But as we've already ascertained, it's a bit more complex than that. So, and basically, hidden homelessness um, is anyone who is homeless but isn't spotted on those counts. These different types of homelessness, they intersect. So what's fairly normal is that people may well be out on the streets for three or four nights a week, couch surf for a couple of nights a week, then spend a night in a hostel. So they're kind of transitioning between lots of different types of homelessness, like even on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. Homelessness is a much more complex phenomenon than many realise including many different types, which intersect with different circumstances. Rough sleeping is the most visible, dangerous and exposed type of homelessness. The longer someone experiences rough sleeping, the more susceptible they are to trauma, mental health, sexual assault and drug misuse. And yet the quality of the statistics on rough sleeping is truly awful, counted on only one night a year. In autumn 2019, the government estimated 4,266 people sleeping rough on Britain's streets, which is a known underestimation. Another type is statutory homelessness, which refers to those who have managed to get some sort of support from their council. Local authorities have a legal duty to secure a home for some groups of people, but it's a strict criteria. Most often, this support only leads to temporary accommodation in the first instance, which the person or family in question have to accept or risk being considered intentionally homeless and therefore with no duty of care. The number of people in temporary accommodation in summer 2020 was 93,490. But both of these types of homelessness pale in comparison to hidden homelessness. These are people who are either not legally entitled to help or who don't want to approach the council for support and are therefore missed from official official statistics. Staying in hostels, B&Bs, squats, overcrowded accommodation or sofa surfing. In particular, women's homelessness is often hidden and therefore underreported as well as frequently linked to abuse. According to the charity Crisis, around 62% of all homelessness is estimated to be hidden, potentially up to 200,000 people. And a lot of people don't seek statutory help. I mean, so going back to kind of um, previous um, podcasts you did on refugees, a lot of um, people who are from the European Union, for example, anyone who has no recourse to public funds at the moment they're not able to access um, housing through the local authorities. 
And furthermore, uh, there is a fear amongst that group that if they do uh, go, to, go to the council, present as homeless, they can end up being deported. So you have people who are hidden from the homeless, homeless numbers, but these, per these people are purposely hiding. They do not want to be found, mm -hmm. which makes it incredibly difficult to support them. How do you support someone if they're purposely trying not to be found? Mm -hmm. Puts in a really difficult situation and makes people incredibly vulnerable to modern-day slavery, various other things, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. It's difficult. The proportion of the people who, who are in the care system and end up being homeless is astronomical. Um, and actually a lot of people leave care early to become homeless because the situations they're in are so dire. So that's one. I mean, to a certain extent, drug and alcohol is a reason, but generally speaking, drug and alcohol is what, is what, people, what homeless people rely on to get by when they're homeless to kind of mask the emotional and physical pain to a large extent. I don't, I'm not entirely sure what the average person's view is, I've never been really asked, but if, if I was to look back at my own views, yeah, I'm pretty sure I thought that people become homeless because they take drugs and we have substance abuse issues. When, when actually I've spent the last five years of my life researching it, fortunately I realise it's slightly more complex than that now. The first barrier towards getting somewhat, getting yourself together and being what some people would say is taking responsibilities is seeking employment and getting a job. Um, which is logical, I can understand that. If, but if you are homeless, getting a job is incredibly difficult. So first of all, you may well, due to the trauma of being homeless, you may well have some substance abuse issues. Um, you can't access rehab or uh, get, get, get any support that. Therefore, the chances of kicking your addictions are incredibly difficult. Therefore, getting a job in that sense is very difficult. Um, then if you throw in the fact that you haven't got a fixed address, then that makes applying for jobs incredibly difficult because you need to have, have a fixed address. You need to be able to have a, yeah, you need a fixed address. You would need to have a bank account, for example. If you're homeless, then it's incredibly difficult to get a bank account actually I, I was walking around I was doing a street outreach um, session and I was with one worker we're trying to get a homeless person a bank account and it's fiendishly difficult I couldn't even believe it so you've got to have a bank account so uh, then also you need to be able to have a good night's sleep if you're on the streets I, I can't even imagine what a good night's sleep how, how you would even do that so between between substance abuse, like having having a, having an address, having a bank account, and not being able to sleep, it's quite difficult to resolve even one of those things, let alone all of them. But if if there was housing available, then you could start to move those things slowly but surely, and that's what everyone in started to do for a lot of people. Uh, but of course those quite significant gains have now been lost to a large extent. Getting out of that homeless lifestyle is difficult for a lot of people. They may well, their friends may well be homeless. That may be the only social connections they have. So, kind of ask, so by demanding that people get out of that lifestyle, but actually a lot of them are losing the friendships and the connections they have. So, I was doing an interview with uh, a gentleman in, in central Sheffield a few years ago now. And he was housed uh, 
in a place called Low Edges, which is miles away from the city centre. I mean, I'm talking miles away. It's probably about a two-hour walk in total. So he was given a flat, no white goods, so no washing machine, no, um, no freezer, no fridge or anything. And he was basically told he had to walk from, from uh, Low Edges into the city centre each day in order to get food. And he had no money to get a bus. So what did he do? He went back to be on the streets, even though he had a flat. So even the dichotomy between someone who is housed and someone who is homeless, actually it's not as clear-cut as it first appears. And people need to be housed in adequate situations uh, for their lifestyles. And it's, I'm not saying that's easy, but that's what, simply putting someone in a property and not thinking about where it is doesn't really address the issue and what they do in a lot of cities that they'll they'll get large groups of homeless people they'll they'll house them all in the same blocks or in the same neighborhoods so then what happens is the local drum dealers go along there and they know and they start knocking on people's windows people have said this to me in interviews so they're trying to keep keep their habit of certain substances they moved into into a block of flats and then they've got a drug dealers knocking on the window all hours of the day. So, drug use, homelessness, um, youth unemployment, uh, mental health, all of these things are completely and utterly connected. Looking at one, like for instance, looking at homelessness, you can't look at homelessness as a standalone subject. All of these things are completely interconnected. And it was always the case, but I think over the last 10 years with austerity and the cuts, it's really demonstrated how, how actually um, the system is rather fucked. I don't really know how we get out of this without having resources. There are many different reasons why someone might find themselves homeless. One is socio-economics, such as the loss of employment, the eviction or foreclosure of someone's home, or perhaps unmanageable drug and mental illness problems. But migration status might also play a role. Since 2016, landlords are forced to check a right to rent, i.e. the immigration status of future tenants. Whereas a rejected refugee status, which means they have no recourse to public funds, means a choice between a detention centre, deportation and homelessness. Sexuality might also be a reason why someone finds themselves on the streets with the LGBTQ plus population making up around 24% of young homeless people and are far more likely to be subjected to violence. There's also been a feminisation of homelessness through relationship breakups, domestic abuse or violence and women are much more likely to be hidden homeless and therefore experience trauma. Another group would be ex-service people suffering from perhaps post-traumatic stress disorder, a lack of support, long-term injury and unemployment. Or another reason why people might refuse statutory support is simply because they have an animal companion who have meant the difference between life and death, something for that person to live for, yet have to be given up if they accept support. Being homeless, then, is not a universal category. And yet all people who are homeless 
experience the city in certain ways, experiencing oppression, policing and trauma. Yeah, so, so outside Sheffield Cathedral now, a uh, beautiful sunny day, and time's about half past two. So where, we're now, where we are now, there's a homeless centre around the back of the cathedral. And that kicks out, kicking out times are usually about one o'clock, so people would have left there, they would have dispersed around the rest of Sheffield. I can't see anyone at this point. But usually if you were to come down here um, at 7.30 in the morning, like I've done in the past, you will see large numbers of homeless people congregating in groups of three or four. Um, quite a lot of them will be drinking, and yeah, so quite a lot will be drinking. But generally speaking, there aren't any antisocial behaviour issues. You might have the odd person causing problems, but then that can be said for any grievance society at any point in time. Um, yeah, then usually what happens, people will go around to the, um, to the Archer Project around the back, and they'll receive some form of support there and then they'll, be let, they'll leave there about one o'clock. But this is always a really interesting spot. And yeah, I think this is an area where things are tolerated for slightly longer. But I mean, for example, talking about being moved on, I was doing an interview um, in a borough to, in the west of London a few weeks ago. And I put a map out and I asked the gentleman to like, mark where he had been on one day. And he literally said that he, he'd been moved on five or six times in one day. Doing one night, he was moved on four times, and it just kind of goes to show the kind of how how much people are being harassed by the police and local authorities, and how how basically their even existence in an area is trying to be well, basically it's trying to be removed. And there's no there's no appetite to to give them housing or no appetite to actually sort out the issues. It's literally move on, move on where anywhere but here. I mean, the same thing happens another half an hour later. That's not sustainable in any way, shape or form. And if you're looking at, in terms of policing of this area, which is the kind of work I'm doing now, it's right in front of us now. We see a, a South Yorkshire Police mobile CCTV uh, unit. I have no idea what the purpose of that is. Um, couldn't even speculate. But usually if we... But if you come around here most days, there is a high police presence in this area. And the only rational reason for that is because there's a homeless centre around the corner. Um, I've seen people being arrested here for begging in the past. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting part of Sheffield. And also, if we're looking at what happens to areas like this in the future, so if we... We know that every town centre and city centre in the whole country has been hit pretty badly by the pandemic economically. There's going to be greater pressures for the local authorities to clear out homeless people from the city centres to make it more aesthetically pleasing to the customers. Mm. So this is a really contentious space. And I think it, like if we could come back here in 10 years' time, I think it will be very different in what's... What it will look like, I don't know, but it's, this change is certainly happening. Um, but in terms of broad policing of, in towns and city centres, it's incredibly localised, and it's down to the, the kind of uh, the pressure that's been put on the local authority by the local businesses to a large extent. If you've got a large um, business lobby or businesses are quite powerful in an area, they may well be pushing on the local authorities to get homeless people out of there. Whereas some parts of 
parts of the UK, particularly some boroughs in the east of London, are they're pretty relaxed around homeless people being out and about. They don't really try to move along too much. So yeah, it's very, very localised. And this is a problem. So as you mentioned earlier, we have local authorities having large cuts. This is why it gets difficult for homelessness, because you have large cuts for local authority. The services by local authority are very sporadic, so you might find that some areas have, have um, drug and alcohol services, some areas don't. Then you have different policing regimes in different areas. It's just an incredibly difficult situation. It's really hard to navigate, and even as a researcher, I've been doing this, um, I've been researching um, policing and homeless people for about 18 months now. I'm still getting to grips with it. My colleagues who have been doing this for years, we're, we're still trying to understand what's going on. Yeah. No, and this no, is no. our job, you know what I mean? I've got a PhD, I'm an expert, I'm supposed to be an expert on this stuff, but I'm really not because mm-hmm. it's so, so complex and it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. In essence, it's very localised. So there's different powers. Public space protection order is one example. So in Sheffield, I don't believe there is a public space protection order. But a public space protection order essentially... Um, it creates different bylaws for different areas of the city. So, for instance, we're outside the cathedral now. They could put a, put a public space protection order in this area or the whole of the city centre, which would which would ensure that people can be fined £100 for drinking on the streets. Um, for example, begging is quite a common one in different parts of the country. Um, sleeping, sleeping out leaving possessions on the streets. So all of these things homeless people could be fined £100 for. Now, there's only some local authorities who have decided to do this. Um, why they've decided to do this, I don't know, because it's, in my mind, it's completely and utterly illogical finding homeless people hundreds of pounds for relatively innocuous actions when they haven't got much money themselves um, is illogical. I mean, to go on a slight tangent, I would say that finding a beggar is just absolutely insane because how else are they, how are they going to pay the fine? So yeah, one other, one other thing which is really interesting about Sheffield is that one of the main shopping streets which has been redeveloped massively over the last few years, that is, that is pub, sorry, that's private land. It's owned by a property developer. Therefore, you've got a different level of policing there. That's actually policed by private security people in addition to a policing. And if anyone is caught begging in that area, then they will be moved on by the police. Even if you're sat on the streets with a, with a, by yourself or with a dog, you will be moved on by the, by the security or the police. So it's a really contested, really contested situation now in towns and city centres. Massively complex. Yeah, but local authorities are all in competition with each other to, to attract inward investment. Now... You could probably make a fair case to say that if you're in charge of a local authority, you're, you'd expect to receive less inward investment if you've got lots of homeless people on the streets. So there's two ways to get homeless people off the streets. You invest in services and you try to do the best job with that, or you essentially move on. Mm-hmm. There's always options available to get people off the streets it's just whether or not local authorities try their best to take the best option or not there is a reason why the, why the police and the PCSO so police um, police community support officers 
and some of the city wardens. There's a reason why they wear bright yellow, bright reds, bright blue, is so you can spot them from 100, 100 yards away. Now, recently I was doing an interview with a lad on the streets. Um, I can't say where, but wasn't in Sheffield anyway. And I was talking to him about his experience of being um, harassed by the police, for want of a better term. And as soon as the... So we were, I was literally sat there on the streets with him and when, he was, uh, when he was begging. And I was talking to, talking, to, talking to him about his experience with the police. I mean, literally, as soon as I asked that, a police, a police, police, uh, police woman came into sight about 100 yards away and I could see his breathing changed, his posture changed and there was a sense of fear that came as a result of the police officer being close to him. It turned out it was okay but there was certainly anxiety and it's, that's, what, that's, what, that's why the policies are in place, that's why people are being policed in that way, is to create fear. It's too great animosity, concern. We might borrow the language from refugee studies literature to talk about a politics of discomfort in this style of policing. By establishing a hostile environment where people are not allowed to settle, feel at home or even temporarily feel safe and secure, this is a policing that works by constantly moving people along, never addressing the root causes of street homelessness but instead addressing a business-driven mandate to clean up the streets. Once again, we find ourselves asking, whose city is it? According to Atkinson and Jacobs in 2016, in a rather primal sense, our home is the means by which we are able to stay safe, sheltered and well. It plays a central role in binding various aspects of our lives together, offering a place of sanctuary, and a primary place to which we can retreat. They call this an ontological security, which gives us assurances in the predictability of social life and our deep need for a sense that the world around us is stable. They point to popular expressions that capture this, such as an Englishman's home is his castle. Yet this also frames the home as private, sacrosanct and defensible as a space of self-determination. The home in this sense, then, is a space over which we have control, authority, legal entitlement and the ability to expel an intruder. All things denied to those who are street homeless. So anyone who's listening to this, you may, you may get to it this evening, you may, you may open a beer, you may have something to drink in the evening, you may sit on your sofa and enjoy yourself. If you're homeless, where do you go? You do it on the streets. If you do, if, but if you drink on the streets, you're inviting police pressure. And if the police pressure comes towards you, your only options are really to give over your alcohol or to be forced to move on and leave that space or you can get arrested. You make the choice. So what do you do in that circumstance? You probably give over your alcohol and you hope for the best. But this is their home. And it's, and it's a dark situation, it's very difficult for a lot of us to realise, but these, these corners and these parks and these city centres are people's homes. And it's, not their, it's their home through no fault of their own, usually. But I think, how do we treat people better when it, with their own homes? Their home is where they reside. Home isn't, a, home isn't what 
home to them isn't what home is to me. For me, a home is somewhere I feel secure, somewhere I feel safe, somewhere I have belonging to. For homeless people, the home, well, people who are sleeping on the streets, their home is their, where they are at that moment in time. And homeless, in, in, in that sense, home comes from what you, what you possess. If you possess a tent, that is your home. And this other stuff that comes with it, is, I mean, for example, the importance of possessions. If, you're, if you have no home, then the most important thing to you may well be the photos of your family who you are now a stranger with or have passed away. It may be um, the clothes the clothes which you feel a connection to, the clothes if you, had, if you had a positive experience in your life and you still own clothes that you're wearing on that day, that means something to you. But if we're taking it back to policing, uh, a slight tangent, but people's if you're sleeping on a tent in a tent sorry in a lot of cities in chef sorry in the uk your tent can be removed with your possessions in london there are videos online um, through organizations that we both know who have video who have got videos of people in tents being hosed down by the local authorities with all their possessions and their sense of home being destroyed which is just utterly horrendous like i don't Sorry, it makes me angry when I talk about it. But, but yeah, home can be anything. Home can be home can be um, a town. Home home could be this area outside of cathedral where we are now. Home could be a hostel room. Home is a shifting. Home is something that shifts. Home is something that evolves on a week by week or even a month by month basis, even day by day. So, and it's important that we allow people to have a sense of home. It may well be that these spaces are contested maybe we need to turn a blind eye to it but simply by moving people on from what may be their home isn't going to be helping mm-hmm. in the same way that evicting someone isn't helpful if someone comes in and kicks me out of my house that ain't going to make my life better mm-hmm. in the same way that evicting someone from the city centre or giving someone a fine for residing in a certain area ain't going to help yeah there's, there's no security being given and even even amongst homeless people it's it's a contested world for them because if we think about the cuts over the last 10 years and some of the issues now around um, how difficult it is to beg but due to the cashless society because of the pandemic you have greater greater levels of conflict amongst street sleeping homeless people because there are less and less resources it's like any ecosystem or any job like if me and you are applying for the same job there then we are fighting for scarce resources i.e. that job and it just creates animosity it creates violence amongst a lot of people who are homeless it's just an incredibly incredibly difficult situation so the pretenses everyone in uh, was back in march of uh, 2020 when the pandemic first hit they put in uh, the government put out an initiative and funding to ensure that every homeless people was every homeless person was taken off the streets and put in hotels or hostels during the pandemic Uh, that that lasted for a varying amount of time. So in some, so in some parts of the, well, some local authorities kept everyone in. Actually, some parts of the country, I still think everyone in is still going on to this day. The ones who, who have still got the funding. Whereas other places, it didn't last very long at all. So again, localised picture. For a lot of homeless people, everyone in was really positive. Incredibly positive for their lives. It, they were able to be... It wasn't just about the pandemic, but it was about 
they had a roof over their heads. They were getting three meals a day. They were getting they were getting involved in drug and alcohol services for the first time in their lives. So for, uh, for a lot of people, it was really really positive, and it made a massive change in their lives. Um, interviewed a few people recently who they're still on the streets but their addictions are now under control to a certain extent because yeah because they managed to get help through the everyone initiative Um, unfortunately it's obviously ended now and we're back to where we were originally everyone in initiative that was money from from central government provided to local authorities so yeah, local authorities essentially couldn't afford to keep it going. But there was a desire to. I mean, if you speak to anyone in local authorities, they'll all tell you, anyone in the homelessness sector, they'll tell you that they would love to keep everyone else, everyone in and going and to try and really build on that success. But the funding is not there. And this is what makes it, makes it very difficult to research homelessness because literally every, different, every town and city across the country is different now. Each one has different regimes of policing. Each one has different support structures available to homeless people. Like I was saying previously about rehab or the homeless day centres, hostels. Everywhere is completely different. I've done research in probably 13 or 14 different towns and cities across the UK now. Each one of them is completely different. You can't really compare any of them because it's so, so dramatically different in every way. As Lindsay McCarthy has argued in her 2020 paper, both home and homelessness point beyond the physical dwelling or lack of dwelling. And they point that housing is on its own is not sufficient to the attainment of a home and that other signifiers are important. In the literature, the word home has been expanded to mean more than bricks and mortar of a house and has become a socio-spatial entity or a psycho-spatial entity. It's a place imbued with deep feelings infested with emotion. Likewise, others have observed how homelessness denotes all kinds of deprivations in the opposite to this, such as physiological, emotional, territorial, ontological and spiritual deprivation. Homelessness implies the loss of qualities that we often associate with the home, such as privacy, control, refuge and sanctuary. In her work, McCarthy argues that we need to focus on people's possessions, working with women in temporary accommodation. She argues that a focus on things and people's relationships to things has a special relevancy when the people in question are homeless, because belonging in the home holds an important meaning for individuals in our society, and the loss of material possessions is often viewed as a violation of the self. She argues that homeless women in her research used material culture to cope in unfamiliar spaces and through transitional experiences. In the middle of experiencing dislocation, her participants utilised objects as personal anchorage points to conjure up more comfortable past worlds or a more hopeful future one. The homeless women in her study used these material possessions to negotiate a sense of ownership, personalisation and control in otherwise alienating temporary and hostile spaces. But McCarthy argues more widely that the process of homemaking is something that all of us are engaged in. 
whether or not our housing situation is precarious. Homelessness, then, does not deter the desire to make a home, and home is something that people strive for and attempt to create regardless of their circumstances. Home is relational, intangible, portable, psychosocial and emotional, but it's also the roof over our head and all the things underneath it. It's important that we recognise this materiality, because homelessness kills. By putting it in context, this makes us realise that homelessness is an extreme consequence of the housing crisis and wider spatial inequalities. As Madden and Marcuse argue in defence of housing, questioning housing today means uncovering the connections between societal power and the residential experience. It means asking who and what housing is for, who controls it, who it empowers and who it oppresses. For them, what needs defending is the use of housing as home, not as real estate. This is a resource that should be available to all. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time on City Community Culture. One day I know our past will cross again. Smile again, smile again. One day I hope to make you smile again. I will. Just be full So I'll close